Hello, and welcome to Remember When. I'm your host, Michael Morrison. UMGA-TV is continuing this series as an oral history project of life and community in Upper Marion Township. In their own words, we want the people who live the history of the township to tell us about that history. This edition features Carl DeHaven. Carl recalls his fond memories of life in the township and his career as an Upper Marion police officer. He also discusses his visit back to Iwo Jima 60 years after his service in the United States Marine Corps. Let's sit back and listen to Carl remember when. Carl, thank you for coming today. Uh, it's a pleasure uh, meeting you finally after all these years. Um, tell me a little bit about the DeHaven family, how they came to this area. Well, uh, back in the, during the 15th century, when the religious wars were going on, the De Havens were living in France at that time, and they were classified as Huguenots. And the description of a Huguenot is, is they weren't 100% Protestant, but they were leading towards the Protestant faith. But at that time, uh, France was Roman Catholic. And you had Huguenots not only living in France, but they were living in Spain. They were living practically all over the world in the, in the, in the biggest part of Europe. So during the religious wars, if you weren't Protestant or Huguenot, you better get out of France in a hurry <laughs> because it's a known fact that they were uh, persecuting the the Protestants and and the, by the use of the guillotine. This is this is history. So my family, uh, with the name of De Haven at that time, was living in southern France and near the German border than any part of France. And so they fled into France to get away from all this that was happening. And when they, they became Germans actually now, they fled, fled to, to Germany and they became uh, Protestant Germans. And uh, they changed their name to a German name. And that name was Indenhofen. N-I-N-N, second word D-E-N, third word H-O-F-F-E-N. So in the 1600s, in the latter part of the 1600s, uh, there was a, a lot of people wanting to, to become, to come to America. And a lot of the, these Indahofen families did come and landed in Germantown, which was not part of Philadelphia at that time. And they stayed there for a while and, uh, they started to migrate up uh, 73 or skip back pike. 
and they got up as far as Bluebell and they settled on two opposite corners and now they've changed their name back to Dehaven. John and Peter. One corner, which now is the residence of Bluebell Inn, was Peter's. He bought 40 acres and included the entire corner where the Bluebell Inn is now today. And on the opposite side, I, I, I don't remember the name. It's, it's had several restaurants there at the time, uh, up till now. And I think there is a restaurant there now. Uh, John bought 40 acres, very similar to what his brother did. Then, uh, another portion of the family crossed the Schuylkill River. Masson Ford and came to Gough Mills. And uh, Jacob was one of those the Havens. He ended up marrying a Van Pelt. A Van Pelt estate uh, is is still there in Gough Mills. It lies off to the left going uphill of Upper Gough Road. There, there, there's a settlement in there now with very expensive homes. And I think one of the Van Pelts that may be still alive, Charlie Van Pelt, may live there uh, himself. Uh, when... George Washington came through and crossed the Schuylkill River and he came up past the Hanging Rock on Montgomery Avenue, which we call today, or Route 23. He met Jacob de Haven uh, along with the Secretary of Treasure, who was Robert Morris at that time. And seeing how much in need that the revolutionary soldiers needed uh, clothing, supplies, food, money, Jacob de Haven, who I stated married a Van Pelt, gave Secretary Morris $50,000 in gold along with other supplies. And this wasn't the only family that did this. There were other families in the area that also liked the Suplees and, and the Holsteins and more than, more than those that helped along. And Washington moved on to Valley Forge and I guess you know most people know the story about Washington of Valley Forge. There was there was not ever a battle of Valley Forge, but there was an encampment where they they licked their wounds from the Battle of Germantown, so to say, until they can get back on their feet again and move on. There's said to be a Bible that that it was recorded in. And nobody seems to know where the Bible is. But 
where this information come from. It had to come from somewhere. And a, um, a man by the name of Howard DeHaven Ross wrote a book on it. And he was a graduate from, a graduate from the University of Pennsylvania. And in that book, it's recorded what I'm telling you now. And so far, we know that the loan was never, ever paid back. Now, whether it was supposed to be paid back or not, I, I, I don't know. But they tried to recover some of the money several times and war broke out, like the Spanish-American War, the Civil War, and it never happened because they were too busy doing other things at that time. We formed the De Haven Reunion, and the president of that un union happens to live in Texas, in a town called Denton, Texas, which is near Dallas. And she's hard at work now writing a book and has been writing this book for years. She's a, she's approximately 97 years old now and seems to know what she's doing and uh, where she's getting her information is through people like me and people prior to me and so down the line. So we had a reunion in San Antonio. And following that reunion, we had a reunion in King of Prussia. And approximately 500 Dehavens showed up at the Holiday Inn in King of Prussia. I think it was 1993. Don't quote me on that, but somewhere in the, in the 90s. And we had approximately 37 states represented and five foreign countries. You had Germany, England, France, Holland, and Sweden. They came over for the reunion. And then sometime after that, uh, we hired a, a female Texan lawyer. Everything seems to, why is it down in Texas? Why isn't it up here? <laughs> and uh, she took this case all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And they denied everything because of the statute of limitations. So that put a put an end to that. But we made some money off of that reunion. And what we did with that money, we refurbished some of the tombstones at the Christ Swiss Church in Swissburg that were falling apart. And they were revolutionary soldiers with the name of the Haven. 
And we also, at the bell tower in Valley Forge Park, there's steps that go up to the Carillion. Above those steps, before you enter the doorway, are blocks of granite or sandstone, whatever it is. And they can be bought for memory purposes. And we purchased one of them. And we had inscribed in member of the DeHaven family who served and gave during the American Revolution. I also met a gentleman, his name was Senator Pelley from the state of Washington. Somehow he was involved either in marriage through a DeHaven or otherwise. And and he presented a bill to get this thing rolling prior to the denial, the statute of limitations. And they shot that bill down. So I wrote to him, I said, uh, if it's, if, if, uh, after it was denied, I, I had asked if, uh, if they couldn't grant us some type of financial help and put a, a large monument up in Valley Forge Park in behalf of the family, and we'll call it even. <laughs> I never heard anything from them. And I, you know, this woman in Texas is doing a heck of a job She's using the, using old uh, typewriters uh, because of her age. She doesn't know too much about the computer system and everything. And and I hope someday that that the book does get finished before she passes along, because she's been working on it for many 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 years. Her name is Dorothy Berntine, B-E-R-T-I-N-E, and she's related. Through the, to the Havens, through the Yoakums. So you got Suplees, you got the Yoakums, you got the Holsteins, you got the Rambos, and all those names are right here in Upper Marion Township. There's either roads named after them, or there's a building named after them, or, or, or something else will have the, those names. So, you know, they did, did do some, some good for the township, for them to get their name put down in history. I never got involved in, in, in this gene genealogy until one day a woman came from Texas, again, Texas, uh, up knocked on my mother's door back in the early 50s. And she told told the story that she was interested in the history of the DeHaven family and could she spend some time there? And my mother and father let her stay for about a week until she did some researching. I, I don't know her name, but uh, the, you know, everything gets back to Texas. And guess what? I live in Texas now. <laughs> I don't know if it has anything to do with it, but 
I live I live down near Galveston, and I haven't met a De Haven yet down there. But I did uh, go to Winchester, Virginia. That's where my 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 wife and I were married, and we had a reunion there. And I went to ch churchyards. You wouldn't believe, out in nowhere on dirt roads. There's a church standing in the woods somewhere. And I swear, I never saw so many Dehaven tombstones, more than we have here. So, you know, they seem like they're all over. <laughs> you mentioned that you, uh, uh, with some of the money collected, refurbished, refurbished some uh, gravestones, grave markers yes. uh, at Christ Church Old Suites. Yeah. Um, I did a little research and I found out that your family actually donated the land for that church. Yes, uh, supposedly uh, uh, they had uh, they were they they were given the right to any burials at that churchyard free of charge. Also, uh, I, I I I don't know who was who was instrumental of providing the money for it. For the church, but I did hear that myself that it, they were given they were given money to to finance the building of that church, and that's a Swedish church, and the Swedes the Swedes uh, were a dominant factor of Swedesburg. That's why it's called Swedesburg. Now you're a, a lineal descendant of Samuel de Haven. Yes, that was Jacob's brother. Yes. Where he spent a good portion of his later life. Yes. Um, lamenting not being paid back the money, I would, I, would, I would suspect. Did anyone ever figure out, just for fun, how much that $50,000 loan would be in today's dollars? At 6% on them, it would break the bank. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Obama would be happy today. <laughs> I'm sure you're correct. <laughs> so <laughs> let's jump ahead a little bit and find out about a little bit about uh, about what you've been doing in the past few years. I understand that you uh, you're 87 years old now and you live in Galveston and you drove straight through to come here with a little stop along the way to visit some relatives. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're so happy for you. Uh, for you coming up here because it gives us a chance to get to know you a little better and fascinating story about your family. Um, you were a Marine and you uh, served as a police officer in Upper Marion Township for 26 years. Uh, thank you for your service to the country and to the township, of course. Thank you. Um, tell me about some the interesting aspect of being a police officer uh, during that time in Upper Marion, you were here when monumental changes happened to this area. We grew from a sleepy little hamlet into uh, a thriving town in a very, very short time. You must have seen a number of uh, interesting and exciting things being on the police force. Um, riots and strikes and labor disputes, things of that nature. Do you remember any of that? Yes, I do. Tell me what you remember. Uh, well, I, I, I'd like to start back uh, becoming a police officer. Is uh, 
I never ever thought I'd ever become a police officer. That was the last job that I thought I'd ever, I never gave it a thought. And, and my wife had an uncle, his name was George Santoro. And he was a uh, biology teacher in Upper Marion. And a uh, very likable person. And he was also a former Marine. He was also the one of the first football coaches in Upper Marion Township High School. He came to me one day and he said, I had been, when I came home from the Corps, I had a hard time adopting to inside jobs. I, I couldn't work inside. I was an outside person and I knew it. And everywhere I went inside, it didn't stay long. So he said, Carl, he said, do you want to be a truck driver all your life? I had been working for Toes Trucking for Michael Toes, the father of Leonard Toes. And if you know who Leonard was, he owned the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, there was only one other brother, Louie, and he died early in life. Uh, I was working there when he died. Then his father died, and then uh, uh, the only other person left to inherit the trucking business was was Leonard. So I more or less saw the handwriting on the wall, and I decided to give it a try because uh, he had asked me. He said, give it a try. He said, you may like it. So I, I uh, took the test along with 33 others. We had to be a resident at that time in Upper Marion for at least a year. And my wife and I had uh, purchased a home in Henderson Park uh, built, like, uh, built by uh, A.J. Volpe. Uh, three bedroom. One car garage, uh, uh, a nice little bungalow for a start out. And we had two children while we lived there. We paid $13,900 for that home. And they weren't drywall. They were the actual uh, plaster. plaster walls. Mm -hmm. And uh, we lived there for 12 years. And uh, I saw a piece of ground come available up in Hughes Road through a friend of mine. He told me the family wanted to get rid of it and, uh, and split the, the profit uh, amongst the family. So he said, you go to the Penn Trust Bank in Norristown and make this offer to them and not a penny more or a penny less. And he said, you'll get it. So I, I did what he told me and sure enough, I, I got, I did what he wanted me to offer and it was done with like, like that, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but then I sold my home to a, a school teacher 
my wife was a school teacher at that time in, in uh, Burnside Elementary School in Jeffersonville. And we sold it to a, a school teacher from Upper Marion. I can't remember her name, but she just recently died. And uh, we sold that home for $26,000. But when I purchased the home for 13000 I bought it under the GI bill that they had for us returning veterans. And uh, I still remember uh, John McAllister was the real estate man who took care of all of Mr. Volpe's homes. And I took a 30-year mortgage, $84 a month. That included taxes for the year. That's what I paid for that home, 30-year mortgage. 84, can you imagine $84 a month and no, included sir. taxes? <laughs> but look imagine. at the price of the home, too. <laughs> so I sold it for 26000 and I bought this ground. And uh, while it was in, under construction, I, I, I had to think fast because the woman wanted to move in right away. And uh, so I moved to Valley View Apartments until I was able to get get enough of it going that I could move in. And that was located up on Hughes Road in Goff Mills. So there I am back in Goff Mills where the Dehavens came from. <laughs> And I never regretted it. I never turned looking back. I just, it was, it was a nice home. And I, I, I bought the eight acres. That ground had eight acres to it. And you try to buy eight acres in Upper Marion Township today and see what it would cost. If you could even find it. That's, that's right. <laughs> so. So after I sold that home, I mean, after I moved into that home, we moved there 12 years again. And my thoughts are elsewhere. So what did I get for that home 12 years later? After paying I $32,000 for it, little more than what I had sold my Henderson Park home for, I got $220,000 for that home. So I worked every 12 years, it seemed like I'm, I'm, I'm selling a home and buying another one. <laughs> so my wife and I thought it was about time to, to quit our jobs. We had enough time in to retire. She had 34 years of teaching in as to me having 26, uh, 26 years in on the police job. But we, we thought, well, we'll get something smaller. So we moved to uh, Glen Hardy, which is in different township. And we, we bought a nice little condo over there. The, the kids were married now and we were by ourselves. Then we figured we'll do some traveling and take it easy. And lo and behold, 
where do we go? We go down to the Virgin Islands. And who is the builder and, and the backer of, of those homes? A bank in Trevos, Pennsylvania. <laughs> uh, who lives there? Uh, a guy I went to school with. Who else lives there? Uh, Blaine Scott from World Mutual Shorts Company. He had like four units there. So we started renting there for a couple years. And, you know, we'd go down for the winter. And and an old gent that was, I got to know down there, he was ready to come back to the States. So he asked me if I would want to buy one. He said, I see you're renting. Would you like to buy one? So I, I bought it. But... Uh, it wasn't long after I bought it, Hurricane Hugo came along and wiped it right off the side of the hill. That one and a hundred other, other units. So, uh, but I had sold it just before that. Uh, I, I was very lucky. And uh, so I... George Chambers, who is a known family in, in Upper Marion Township, he was a good friend of mine. He lived on, on Hughes Road where I had sold a home. And I told him, George, I said, have you ever seen another home come up for sale? I said, uh, give me a call. So we came back and I was living with my daughter down in Wildwood and he gave me a call. He said, the house just went up for sale at 284 U's. I was at two, I was at 211. Now 284 comes up. So I called the real estate man and lo and behold, I was able to get it. Some negotiations, you know, I was able to buy that. So I still own that house and uh, uh, but I rented it out, uh, after my wife passed away in, in, uh, Christmas time of, uh, 2009, uh, sort of got a little lonely there, but being by yourself. So my oldest daughter who had lived in Tucson, Arizona for 20 some years, uh, moved to Texas due to her husband and transferred to Houston. And uh, so she asked me to come down and live with her. So I rented that house out and it's still being rented out, but it's up for sale again. Uh, I'm trying to get trying to get rid of it. Things are pretty hard with home sales today, but they seem to be picking up a little bit. So maybe I might be lucky enough to, to get it sold. It's a beautiful home. I can see 40 miles from my house. I can see all the way to Reading. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I did some fixing up since I've been in it. But uh, it's not bad down in Texas. I, you know, I made some friends. And uh, uh, the weather is a little warmer than it is here. At the, I'm near the beach. You want to go to the beach, you can... Drive right up on the beach with your car and go swimming. You don't have to walk anywhere. You're 
from here to maybe 10 feet away from the water's edge. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> so do you miss it living here? That's why I came up here for two months. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Normally when you go on vacation, you're only a week or two, right? I stay two months. So tell us what you've been up to lately. Well, in March, I went back to Iwo Jima, where I was in 45, on a tour with a, a historical group. There was approximately 10 or 11 uh, vets out of a group of 151 people who made the trip. Uh, I flew from Houston to Honolulu direct, and then from Honolulu to Guam, where I stayed for approximately seven days. Out of one of those days, which was the 13th of March, passed, uh, we spent the day, one day, on the island of Iwo Jima. <coughs> and uh, this group I went with is, is uh, it's called Histor uh, Military Historical Tours out of Arlington, Virginia. And it's owned by a Lieutenant Colonel who was in the Marine Corps, retired. And uh, he and his daughter own the company and they do very well. They, they don't only go to Iwo Jima, they go other places. They go to Normandy, they go all the different islands that the Marines were on in, in World War II. And uh, so uh, I debated over They've been doing this since the early 80s. And uh, I didn't know whether I re really wanted to go back. But then I talked to a couple other, and they were going, and they said, come on, let's go. So I went. And I'm glad I did. I, I, I had a most wonderful time, you know. I'd never been on Guam before, and the people on Guam were amazing. I mean, they, you know, we... We liberated Guam on July the 21st, 1944, uh, just, just like we did all the rest of the islands prior, prior to, to getting to Guam. Now, Guam is, is a very strategic part of our history today because of, of of the threat we have from North Korea. That is our major naval base in the Pacific Islands. Not Pearl Harbor, but Guam. And uh, if anything was to happen today, Guam would be the first place that would happen at. Uh, Getting back to Iwo Jima, a lot of people say, why Iwo Jima? It was only two miles wide and five miles long. Uh, 
And the only thing there was 21,000 Japanese. Why, why go there and, and have our Marines or our soldiers, who, whoever was going to go there, be, be killed? Well, the answer to that is that Saipan is where we bombed Tokyo from. And that was twice as far to get to as Iwo Jima was. And most of the time, 90% of the time, the, the bombers never could get back. They had a ditch, and they they claimed that they they would have they had lost, not would have had lost. Over twenty seven thousand crew members ditched in the seas and not recovered. So that's the answer because it only took three hours to get to Tokyo from Iwo Jima as opposed to six hours and six hours return, that's 12 hours. Cut it in half. So <clears throat> this shot of Iwo Jima was taken on March the 13th of this year, 2013. It depicts the uh, most recent shooting of Mount Suribachi. It's the symbol of the Marine Corps today. You can see how black that sand is, or volcanic ash. But if you look at the top, you'll see some white specks there. That's exactly where the original flag raising took place. There's roads going up there now. If you can see the roads, it, we were taken up there by little mini buses that were brought over from Okinawa. It's not very high. It's only 550 feet high. Now compare that to the Limerick Towers here. Same height, 550 feet. Now the Japanese were tunneled in that mountain from one end to the other. We had a 93-year-old general who was, was in the 4th Division, which landed with us. The 5th, the 4th, and half of the 3rd Marine Division landed on Iwo. One division is 20,000 men. So now you had 50,000 Marines landing against 21,000 Japanese. The first day we lost 2,600 Marines on that beach. And the, the whole battle, we lost seven to 8,000 with another 17,000 wounded. Won't know how many died from the wounds. The Japanese lost almost every one of those 21,000. Very few, very few uh, taken alive. Our, our, uh, Main thing is the 
we're, we're not the only ones that go back. The Japanese send a contingent of their survivors, if they have any, or relatives. And they perform ceremonies at one location on the island, back-to-back -back monuments. And they have their dignitaries come over, and we have our dignitaries go over. And uh, theirs are a little more elaborate. They go through water spilling, and, you know, ours is mainly speaking. But, and theirs in Japanese, so you don't understand it, but they're, you know what they're doing. Of course, the people today, you know, the young people don't don't know. It's just like uh, our people; they don't teach us in school. Very true. They, 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 a lot of young people don't even know where it's at. Uh, you mentioned. I, I, I'm I'm ashamed to say, but I I say to some people I meet down in Texas. Did you ever hear of Valley Forge? And believe it or not, where's that? Why only a half a division? Well, the other half was there. They were bobbing and weaving out there in case we needed them. But we never needed them, so they went back to Guam. And on April the 1st, when we were coming off Iwo, they were going in Okinawa. That was the last engagement. How long were you there? From the 19th of February to, um, you mean this trip or? No, no. How, uh, when back you, in 45? Yes. Uh, the 19th of February to the 30th of March. You probably investigated uh, some of the murders in the area. We don't like to think about murders, but they're a fact of yeah. life. And there were some interesting ones. Uh, the Maley sisters. Yeah, uh, they, they were, they were a piece of my heart because I, I worked for them part-time. We all had moonlight jobs. You know, we didn't make much money, but we, what we made, we were happy with it. Uh, but uh, we all did moonlight one time or other, and I worked for them. Uh, I was working for them at the time they were murdered. It's, uh, and I still remember uh, clear as day, uh, my, they loved my two girls. And if you remember, I don't know whether you went to school, I can't remember it myself, but they had a leaf project. And being in the nursery business, they said, bring the girls down and we'll pick leaves and we'll give them the name so they can write everything down. When they go back, they'll have their homework done. And it was a September afternoon, raining, drizzling, and I picked them up from the Upper Marion football game, and I had to go past Maley's to to uh, go home to use road. So uh, the girl said, "Dad, aren't you going to stop?" We we told them we'd be. I said, "I don't think they would want you to come today uh, because it's raining out. We'll have to do it on a, a more pleasant day. So we'll do it maybe next weekend." So it might have been a good thing that I didn't stop in there that day because that was the day they were murdered. And uh, I often think back, you know, I could have walked right into it. Sure. But when I got home, 
I wasn't home more than half an hour and I got called to back, back to work that they were found uh, dead. So, uh, you know, uh, we, I went back and we did all the work that you have to do uh, uh, being in the detective unit. At that time, I was a detective. And, uh, and it was a grueling investigation. It's nothing like you see on TV where, you know, a half hour to the crime starts, a half hour later, it's all finished and it went to court and everything else. This weeded itself out over a period of years. But uh, uh, I know the first thing we did, we performed a grid search for anything that we could find around the area. And we found some evidence, clothing from the the people who committed the the, the the murder, bloody clothing that they discarded, and uh, and they found uh, before in the grid search we found pieces of of the pistol that was used, so that was a start. And we noticed that the pistol had markings of a silencer, the barrel of the gun that we found. And we found those over in Mike, uh, uh, not Mike Estock, is it? Mr. Estock's driveway. And, uh, but we didn't find the silencer. So I, I just forget how many months went by uh, and we got a call from Philadelphia uh, PD uh, saying that we have a, a gentleman down here that claims he heard uh, several people talking at a bar uh, that they committed a job in King of Prussia uh, where they murdered two girls. And this. Uh, so pick, picking up on that information, I was sent along with several others down to Philadelphia. And they, they, they let us talk to, we, he eventually became an informer. And uh, <clears throat> we got enough information uh, to uh, uh, obtain a search warrant for the individuals. And, uh, but they didn't live in the same home. One lived across the street from one another. So they, they had a SWAT squad go with us and half of them went to the one home and half went to the other. They were real homes, but they were across the street. And simultaneously, they, we broke into the home. And, uh, of course, we're we're behind the scenes now. We're with them, but we're they're doing the work, and uh, because it was their parish, so to speak. And uh, as we go, the 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 building that I went into the 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 apartment when we went in, uh, the guy was asleep, and he was a uh, Puerto Rican. Uh, he was asleep, but when he heard us 
go in right away his hand went went to go under the pillow and one of the Philadelphia police said make my day you know Clint Eastwood <laughs> type of thing <laughs> and so they grabbed him and, and the pistol at the same time so we didn't have a search warrant for the apartment we have a search warrant for the individual so we had we had to go get a search warrant just so well some of the uh, SWAT team remained there. We went to a judge that was on duty, on call, and got a search warrant. And what did we find? A silencer in the apartment that we just uh, searched, uh, that we went in on and, and, uh, and arrested the, the one individual. And, uh, and there was this, there was this we had the uh, the barrel, and we took the silencer. Perfect fit. So now we know we had the right the right gun. And I was just the right person. And eventually, we made two arrests that day. And then it weeded down. There were five altogether. There were four Puerto Ricans and there was one Cuban. And one of the, uh, and I forget how it came about, but one of the people who was a Puerto Rican had a missing finger. And, and I think it was through the informer, or it may have been one of the people who we arrested who wanted to give some information. And, and they gave us a name. So he was on the FBI wanted list for almost four years. And uh, uh, we got a call from the FBI saying they picked this individual up that we were looking for. He had been arrested for gun running and drugs in Martinique We'll bring him back to Puerto Rico, but you have to send somebody down to pick him up. So I was elected from the police force up in Moran to go along with John Durant, Durante, who was a, a detective from Montgomery County at that time. He eventually turned, turned to be the sheriff of Montgomery County. But when, during this, during this investigation, he was one of Montgomery County's uh, detectives. So we had to go to court down in uh, San Juan and pick him up. That was an experience for itself. But see, I, I was used to going to Puerto, uh, Puerto Rico because going to, going to uh, St. Croix, for the, uh, I was, we flew into Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. and I got to know some of the policemen down there. Uh, uh, and I got to know, I got to know the policeman's brother-in-law who owned a small plane that took us over to St. Croix. So, you know, it, that, that turned out to be a good thing for me. The only thing I didn't know, I couldn't speak Spanish. And the, and the judge down there gave us holy heck for not, 
they sent somebody down here that couldn't speak Spanish. Tell them the next time to send somebody down that could speak Spanish. John or I couldn't speak Spanish. <laughs> so they, it, it was a gruesome sight to go see two women who, who worked so hard. Neither one of them were married. One was more on the male side. I mean, she ran the show. She was out doing the heavy work. And the other was the bookkeeper. And she's the first one that got it. She got shot right in the face, point blank. And when her sister heard, the sister was upstairs on the john, and she heard the commotion, she comes down, and they grab her and twist her around and shoot her point blank behind the head. And now they're both dead within seconds. They went there. The motive was robbery. Uh, there was a $20 bill laying on the table when we got there, and that wasn't even taken. My goodness. It's, uh, you know, and then going to the funeral was a, you know, it's just, they were like, I don't know, they were like family to me. Oh, to many. They were beloved yeah. by the community. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. goodness. It, it was a, a gruesome sight, and I felt very sorry for, uh, she. they had a sister. The brother had died. He was never married, but the other sister was married. He died in February. This happened in uh, in September of 74 is when that happened. They give you their shirt off. They, they used to advance people against their wages. They would give them money to buy a car so they can get back and forth. And they would take some $10 a week out of their pay to pay, pay them back. And they were very kind people. It's just, I didn't. Uh, uh, let me see. Doris was one and Jean was the other. They moved uh, from Villanova. That's why it was called Villanova Nurseries. They moved from Villanova to Henderson Road, but kept the the trade name Villanova Nurseries. Mm -hmm. They did beautiful work in the community too. Yes. Some yeah. of the landscaping that uh, they're, they're still uh, evident. There's still evidence of of some of the beautiful work that they did uh, throughout the community. That, 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 the major um, crime that I investigated, uh, there were others like Arthur Lee Nursery that uh, happened uh, not, I think, the same year, 74. This is a, a photograph from, uh, I suspect it was back in the late 40s or early 50s. Uh, it's a, it's an aerial view of a Colonial Village settlement off of Warner Road. And you can see all the way, you can see Valley Forge Golf Course from there. You can see uh, nursery. I, I forget the name of the nursery that was there, but there's a smokestack over there. It's where Horner Hard Arts and the George Washington Memorial Lodge built after they tore that uh, the nursery down. And it's around the time the turnpike was just getting ready to come through. 
up in this corner is where is where General Electric would be now, which was then Straw Hackers Farm. And it appears that they're moving some earth there. It may be from the for the beginning of construction of the turnpike. That's what it looks like. It looks like the area where the uh, the turnpike uh, gates are, the Valley Forge gates, and. You can see Valley Forge Golf Course, and you can see the mansion. There's a mansion there that, believe it or not, was built by Isaac DeHaven. <laughs> Isaac owned that golf course. I forget how many acres there are, but he owned the entire golf course and built his home which, which is like a southern plantation. He had a fancy to southern homes, and he built that home high on a hill above the 10th green. It turned, it turned out later to be a, uh, a dining uh, room uh, where people could pay to go in and have dinners. And later on, it it uh, burnt down for some reason, whether it was arson or whether it was uh, natural, but it burnt. It remained there for years. And I I think I, after talking to you, you said it was, uh, you think it was in the 1950s? I thought it burned uh, in the late or 70s. Six, late 60s, early 70s, Seven, yeah. something like that. So I do remember that. Uh, it was part of the golf course, a clubhouse at, at, at one time, and never rebuilt. And if you would point to, it's hard for me to see, uh, Whitegate is now where Mr. Burry's home used to be. That uh, Colonial Village development was uh, built by a gentleman uh, by the name of Mecky, and he actually built that house to live in. He built the development of Colonial Village. He also built Colonial Village Swim Club uh, for the folks in the community to use. It was sort of a draw for him uh, in order to sell homes. Uh, he offered them swimming pool memberships as part of the uh, purchase of their home. And that was a year-round club. They did ice skating in the wintertime and uh, the big banquet hall to be rented out um, uh, it was quite a place, and uh, he was quite successful uh, with that development. Of course, we can see Warner Road going across um, the Pennsylvania Railroad, the uh, uh, Trenton Cutoff, Pennsylvania Railroad, the uh, the Reading Railroad's Chester Valley line, which is just now being turned into a multi-use trail. So uh, they're taking pretty much the uh, the old right-of-way, the tracks have been removed, of course, and it's being turned into uh, to a trail that will run from Bridgeport all the way to Downingtown. And uh, it's it's being completed now in, in Tredifferent Township and soon to be completed uh, in Upper Marion. Just a wonderful, clear, uh, beautiful picture of, of how things uh, looked in the early 50s. How did you acquire this? I, my wife and I were riding around one day and uh, 
we saw there was a sale going on at a home that was once owned by Leonard Toes. He built the home and then he sold it to a gentleman who uh, owned the part owner of the Peacock Inn in King of Prussia, Bernard, 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 or Bernard Wallman. And uh, <coughs> I happened to, he said, feel free to look around. So I went upstairs and I saw all these photographs lying around like, like they were being trashed. And I picked that one out and I asked the gentleman, uh, how much do you want for that? He says, you can have it if you want it. He says, uh, I have no need for it. I said, sure, I'd like to have it. So I took it home and uh, I kept looking at it and I, I, I recognized all these places there. You can see Mr. Adolf Florig's home in the photo here. He was a prominent uh, resident of Upper Marion Township. He owned a business and he, he, he had a pool there and the, it was always being used by the public. He always let anybody that wanted to use it, any club, Boy Scouts, no matter who you were, you come and he would reserve a day for you to be there. And you could use the grounds for, for volleyball or anything. He had all the equipment there. And Mr. Burry's home, uh, the owner of uh, Burry Cadillac in Philadelphia for years, is where uh, Whitegate is now. And one of the famous residents of Whitegate, and I think it may be, he may still live there, although he's not here in Philadelphia anymore, is the Phillies ball player, left fielder, uh, uh, Raul I, I, Ibanez. He lives there. And all those homes are worth over a million dollars. They go from a million two, million three, million four, or the how, how much you added on to it. But they started out somewhere just around a million nine hundred thousand. I don't know how many's there, but uh, there's quite a few in there, and they're all large homes, nice looking homes. Well, a lot has happened since this photo was taken. Um, I showed you earlier a photograph that I brought with me of nearly the same view uh, taken 20 years earlier when the uh, development was just being built. And uh, we'll be able to, uh, to show the folks that that photograph. It was taken in, uh, in 1929 by a gentleman by the name of Victor Dallin. Victor Dallin was with the Royal Air Force and... Uh, Fought in World War I, came over to this country and uh, did a lot of aerial photography during the war, aerial mapping, and uh, he put that talent to use uh, by opening up a, uh, his store in uh, the, the Philadelphia Municipal Airport, which was to become Philadelphia International. And he would fly around the area and take pictures of homes and then uh, try and sell them to the folks that, uh, that owned those homes. And one of the places he enjoyed flying around was, was Upper Marion. And uh, we have some wonderful uh, shots now from 1929 and uh, about 1951 of nearly the same area. So uh, it's kind of an interesting progression as to uh, 
some of the things that have happened in that area. Some of your thoughts about uh, growing up in this area and, and seeing some of these amazing changes? Well, I, uh, I lived here most of my life. I was born and raised in Philadelphia at the Misericordia Hospital in West Philadelphia. And I spent some time there with my grandmother and I was born, born of course, during the Depression, 1926. And my father was, my father and mother never owned a home, never, always rented. And when he'd, he'd be furloughed off, the, he worked for the Reading Railroad. And being furloughed was the same as being laid off, but you could be called back anytime. So he was furloughed many, many times along with other, other people, employees. So when I did move to Bridgeport, the first home was at Front and DeKalb Street in Bridgeport. I lived over top of a garage behind McKernan's Bar. And across the street from us was March's Slaughterhouse where they used to slaughter cattle and pigs. And one time a load of pigs got loose and they came out Front Street and went out the DeKalb and headed west on DeKalb Street, which took you over that railroad bridge. We call it the Hump Bridge towards the the bank that's on the corner of 4th and DeKalb. And they were going up DeKalb Street towards Upper Marion Township before they were rounded up. I, I still remember that. I lost a good friend. Uh, we were buddies. We were, we, we were in kindergarten together, I, I believe. And he was run over by a, an oil truck ran right over him, killed him right on the spot at Front and DeKalb Street. I still remember his name. His name was Faris Biggle. Uh, it always stuck in my mind. Uh, I wasn't with him at the time, but I went to his funeral. And I, I was often wondering, I said to my dad, I said, you know, he's, he, they ran over his head, Dad. I says, he has a head now. And those days they used to make artificial heads almost resembling the head of the person and he was laid out that way and it, it looked just like him i know i never got over that never really got over i don't know if they do it today or not but and that's the first time i saw anything like that uh then from front the street we moved to third street and that was almost near the railroad we're getting up to the railroad and my father used to go to work to, at the roundhouse, which was located at 2nd Street down by Daring Paper Mill, which formerly, or after Daring Paper Mill, and most recently, and it's not there now, was Builder's Prime. And they had the roundhouse there with a turntable in it, that when they brought the engines in to service them, they had them come in forward 
and over a pit so they could get underneath and grease them like you did a car in those days. And when they were through with them, the turntable turned around and let them out, go out the right way to the tracks. And many times I, I took my dad's coffee to him because he might have went out the door in a hurry to get there or and his kettle. I used to walk up the Cobb Street to go to school. The school was located at at um, 6th, between 6th and 7th Street on DeKalb. It was called the DeKalb Street Elementary School. It's no longer there. And after 3rd Street, we moved to 4th Street. Not 4th, but Ford, which is up near the uh, Bridgeport High School. Uh, my sister was born there. And after that, we moved to Rambo Street. And after Rambo Street, we moved to Green Street. So it was tough living, I guess. You know, you wouldn't think so. In those days, we didn't, we didn't mind it because everybody else was doing it. They didn't have a home. And sometimes it was hard to find a home because they weren't available because of all the layoffs, depression and everything. I remember standing in line at Weiss's shoe store waiting for a pair of shoes uh, uh, during the depression. I think it was six to seven hours. The line went all the way down 2nd Street. It was at 2nd and DeKalb, the store. Still there, but it's something else now. And... Uh, and they had food stamps in those days also, like they have today. And we were on food stamps because uh, my father was once again laid off. And he said, my father went to work when he was 14 years old. He was born in Sweden, PA. He was born there. Uh, his father was killed at Allenwood Steel when he was three years old. The furnace blew out and killed him and another man that lived in Sweden. I don't. I don't know his name. Uh, in those days, they didn't have insurance. So my grandmother became a widow, and they set the instead of no insurance, they let her. He lived in a, a row of homes. It's called Stone Row. It's still there today. It's just. Uh, on one side of Martella's old bar there. They had a bar and Mr. Martella owned it. And they set her up in a coffee shop and told her that she could live there in the coffee shop and anything she made, she could keep. Uh, you know, I, I imagine donuts and things like that were also available. Unless she left or got married, and she had to get out. So the trolleys used to run from Allentown all the way down to Herzog's Corner, turn around and go back up to Allentown, right through Norristown, out Sweet, out Markley, out through Center Square, out that way. 
So the conductor of that trolley would come up for his coffee break and he met my grandmother. Eventually, you know what happened? They got married. <laughs> and, uh, and he was Catholic and my grandmother wasn't. And my dad had a sister as, as the older they got. And he insisted that the children turn Catholic. And my grandmother was against it. And you're gonna like this story. So it went on for a, quite a while until a compromise was met. Okay, one of them has to be Catholic and one of them be Protestant. So my, my aunt, Ruth, my father's sister, was to turn Catholic. But my father could remain Protestant, but he would have to be fostered or adopted by his grandmother. So they went to court and my grandmother Uh, his, my great-grandmother, his grandmother, legally adopted through Montgomery County Court, my father. Follow me now? Yes. His, great, his grandmother, my great-grandmother. Once that happened now, all his father's brothers became his brother. <laughs> Follow me? All his, his uh, father's sisters became his sister. His grandmother became his mother, legally adopted. <laughs> and you try to tell this to somebody and they get so confused, forget about it. <laughs> so, so, my great-grandmother, was, she was from Conchihawk, and her name was Matilda Brown. She married Howard Elmer DeHaven. And I used to go to the Bridgeport Baptist Church, which is on 4th Street now. You, you can't get to it anymore by vehicle because it's a dead end. But it's right across the street from where Sumrall Tubing used to be. And uh, my great-grandmother was my Sunday school teacher. It was the Bridgeport Baptist Church. So, and every time I went to church, she was always there to see See that I got there first, number one. And number two, she made sure that I was in her class. <laughs> uh, things like that happened. I'll never forget it. Uh, she died in her 90s. There's a lot of longevity in the DeHaven family. And... Uh,
are talking about Jacob Dehaven, uh, Myron of Van Pelt. Jacob built a home. The enclave is there now. And I forget the, I know him very well and I, I, I can't remember his name. Maybe you might know. As your Goff Road and Upper Goff. Remember there used to be a big stone sitting there and they moved it over to Longview Road. Well, there's, there's a set of condos in there now called the Enclave. You could, just, you could see the ruins of a barn there. It's been torn down now, uh, but some of the ruins are there. The gentleman who lived there prior to that, I used to see him a lot. I knew his name, but such a long time ago, we never had too much to say to one another, not for any reason, but just didn't never get to know him that well. But that's Jacob built that home. That's where Jacob lived against that hill, built right into that hill. And they tore that down. It's a shame. It was a, it was a piece that, uh, there's, there was another, another place like it. It's the, the Denby property? The which? The Denby property? No. Well, it be, it belonged to the, uh, the Van Pelts. But it's not on the Denby property. It's if you come from King of Prussia past the Hangar Rock, yes, and you come to the traffic light there where that stone used to be, mm -hmm. and you make a right, and you start up the hill. Right on the right side there, against that hill, used to set this big mansion. Uh, I remember I, working on the barn as a child. Uh, a teenager. Oh, they yes. hired us to uh, to do some work over there to paint and uh, and fix it up, and now it's gone. What was the name of the person? Who oh, I don't, I don't recall. I'm sorry. He lived there for the longest while by himself. I don't know whether he had been married or anything. I used to see him now and then, just driving around. But other than that, that's about it. Hmm. But I, I, I. How did I find that out? I have a friend. Uh, his wife worked for Bryn Mawr, Bryn Mawr Bank, the main bank in, on Lancaster Avenue. And when they were doing that changeover from that house to the enclave, she's, the Bryn Mawr Bank did it all. And she sold the deed. And, and came and told me. Oh, my. <laughs> it's just like uh, uh, that deed that you have here. Yes. How did I get it? I knew the recorder of deeds person who worked at the county. She knew me very well. We're very good friends, uh, her husband and I. And uh, she called me one day. She says, Carl. She said, uh, an old gent came in and he said he was rummaging through his attic and he, he said that he brought this in. He said, I don't know anybody by that name. I have no idea where it came from. And he said, would you like to have it? So I thought I'd bring it to the recording of these. Oh, she said, I'll take it. 
and she calls me. <laughs> and that's how I got the deed from her. There's a gentleman who owns that house and he had a linoleum shop in there. They took the, the top story of the house off and it's almost in the parking lot of the Swedish church, but it's on 4th Street. You know, instead of making that turn by Lee's Mill to go around, you go straight through 4th Street and you're coming into the back part of the church. Well, just before you get to the parking lot, the, the end building, that was, that's the house that, uh, that they lived in, Hannah and, uh, and her husband. Fascinating. It's just, your stories are wonderful. Uh, I, I do so appreciate you taking the time to come here today and share these stories with us. They're just, uh, they're just a wonderful part of, of our rich history. And thank you so much for doing this today. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this edition of Remember When. If you would like to make a suggestion or comment on this program, please use the following contact information. Thanks for watching. Until next time, and always remember when.